Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. On behalf of our Executive Director, Dr. Carla Hayden, our Board of Trustees and Directors, we are honored this evening to have in our presence the author, Gus Rousseau. For over 20 years, Gus has been an investigative reporter, author of six nonfiction books, and writer and or producer of many national and international documentaries for major networks. His books have received Book of the Month Club and History Book Club featured selections. Three have been nominated for films, and one, The Outfit, was a Pulitzer nominee. His October 2008 book, Brother in Arms, The Kennedys, The Castros, and the Politics of Murder, was named winner of the 2008 History Prize by the New York Book Festival. Russo has worked as an investigative reporter for PBS Frontline series, as well as ABC News, with um, special reports with Peter Jennings, and he has worked with Dan Rather, Jack Anderson, and the list goes on. Russo has also been a research consultant to numerous writers, including Seymour Hirsch, Gerald Posner, Anthony Summers, and Lawrence Lemer. And he has written for the Baltimore Sun, The Nation, The Washington Post, Book Forum, American Heritage, The Huffington Post, <laughs> and for years was a regular contributor to the health-related website, Health Links. It is my pleasure to welcome Gus Russo, Baltimore native and writer extraordinaire. Wow. I write fiction, too, and that biography was part of it. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for uh, coming tonight. It's very, I see a lot of friends here. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Wow. And this a great room? For those of you who have been to my house, it brings back memories of my, uh, my house. is very much like this. And, uh, <laughs> uh, well, let's see. Uh, you know, I write uh, nonfiction investigative sort of things about uh, uh, the mob and, and the Kennedys and uh, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff and the CIA. And, um, but over the years, people have said I should write about the times we all, many of us baby boomers and I, uh, grew up in. And uh, I put it off for a long time and finally got around to doing it, mostly because the, the, it hit me that um, times when we grew up, I think we're better. This is my argument that it was a better time and we've seen the best of America. And uh, feel free to argue with me if, if you think I'm wrong, but this is my legal brief for uh, <laughs> it was a better time. And I, the way I did it was sort of a day by day what it was like to live through that era and how much fun we had. It was a lot more joy, I thought, in the world, you know, not a lot of just uh, technical ability. We just had fun, and there was excitement in the world, and I think that we're losing that. And feel free, like I say, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, and I know a few of you out there are eloquent speakers and authors. I see them in the crowd, and as you all know, the first rule of public speaking is to say something funny when you start, and... Uh, I don't know how I played music. Yeah, I sort of opened up for myself tonight. You know, I always want to be my own opening up act. So should I tell a joke? I don't know. Get the crowd on your side. You know the rule, Michael. You know. Um, should I do? What do you think? Okay, a blonde walks into a library. <laughs> it's my only library joke. Have you all heard this? It's my, it's, I have to have something appropriate. You know, 
uh, and I apologize to the blondes out there, but I really don't. Um, uh, Blonde walks into this library, as a matter of fact, and uh, she walks up to the information booth, uh, which you can see the table down the first floor, and uh, she goes up to the information librarian and says, uh, excuse me, I'd like a hamburger, uh, a large chocolate shake, and fries. And the, uh, the librarian says, um, Blondie, this is a library? And the blonde says, she thinks for a second, and she goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'd like a hamburger. <laughs> now I got the crowd, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Not everybody has a library joke, come on, you know. Uh, okay, so the reasons I wrote this book, Boomer Days, which we're here to, to discuss, and feel free, we can, we can dredge up some of my other projects later when we have our conversation. We can talk about anything you want, but uh, we'll start off talking about this, this book here. I, I forgot to bring my jeans, but the cover of this book is a picture of, of a blue jeans that I actually wore in those days with like 100 patches on them, because that's how it was, and the idea just occurred to me to photograph the jeans for the cover. I should have brought them, you know. <laughs> Pass them around, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, yeah, this is the book we're discussing, Boomer Days. Uh, and um, let's see. So the first reason to write it was to to make an argument that we had, I think, a better world back then and a better growing up experience. Uh, and it's also partially to uh, have, provide some nostalgia for people my age who lived through it and one, might want to relive some of the great adventures. You know, we had a great era of music, of politics. Of uh, uh, for me, it was the golden age of tennis. As you'll see in the book, I was big into the tennis scene uh, and played and taught and, and knew a lot of the players during the golden era. So it was just a great time for all those things. And um, so this is sort of a, a cinematic travelogue of what it was like to be. And I didn't just watch it. The reason I wrote this was I, for some reason, I jumped into th everything with both feet. I, uh, uh, you know got into music at a high level, got into tennis at a high level, and worked for George McGovern in politics and Bobby Kennedy. So I did everything to an extreme. You know, I, I'm the definition of the Peter Principle, for those who <laughs> might remember that book, where you just go for what you want, regardless of the fact that you might not be qualified. That, that would be me, but I did it anyway, and I had a lot of great fun doing it. Um, so that's what the book is about. It's just a chronological story of growing up in the 50s and 60s, and... Um, Let's see. Well, the other thing I want to mention, too, that this library, it's so apropos to discuss this here, to talk about it. How many of you out there have actually read this book? Anybody read it yet? A few people? So you, thank you. So you know what, what the, that this library plays is a major character in the first part of the book. I grew up here in Baltimore on in, in the west side, uh, and when I was, we were very poor. We had, uh, I, my parents were Italian immigrants, and... Um, we couldn't afford anything, but, you know, we had a, a good life. And one of my escapes was coming here as a kid to the Central Library on the weekend, and uh, it really opened up the world for me. I mean, it, it, and there's anecdotes in here exactly how that happened. And it, as I look out that door right there, right across that door is the fine arts room, and that's where I learned to play music, okay? And I had a musical career. I've played with James Taylor, Livingston Taylor, The Birds, uh, Poco, the Flying Breeder Brothers, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Mamas and Papas, many famous people I played with, and that's not to brag, but just to say that it started right in that room because I used to come down here on the weekends. Well, I couldn't afford music, but in that room, you could come down. If you were a kid, I was 12 years old. I took the number eight trolley, electric vehicle, from uh, West Baltimore, would come here, and uh, 
in that room would take out all the songbooks that I couldn't afford to buy, all the books on how to play guitar, how to play banjo. And um, so it's really, really nostalgic for me to stand here and look at that room right out the door because it, it changed my life, this building. And not just in music. Uh, when I uh, was 15, I was anxious to go see the world. Part of the things I did here at the Pratt was go to the Fictionary and read all the, the adventure books, Huck Finn and Tanya, you know, the, and, and, and the Michener uh, books were big for me. And I couldn't wait to get out and experience the world. So I would come to the Pratt and say, how do I get a job? And the, and the kindly uh, librarian would say, well, you can get a summer job in the Poconos or whatever. And they gave me these books about how to get away in the summer. And so they showed me how to apply for jobs far away or what I thought was far away. And, uh, and that's how I got my first jobs, was here. Um, the last thing about the Pratt that is so important to me was in 1968, when I was uh, just starting college, um, or 16, I guess 68, yeah, the, um, the draft lottery was for, for Vietnam was in effect. And I was just starting college. Well, I was on my way to, I had been accepted at UMBC, but I couldn't afford to go. My parents couldn't really help me. You know, I got myself in. I said, okay, I had two months over the summer to come up with $2,000 to, uh, to go to UMBC, or else I just, I just couldn't pay the tuition. And um, uh, for me, it was a life-and-death kind of thing because I didn't really care about college all that much. If, if it wasn't for the war, I'd have just gone to California and hung out with all the musicians, but I had to go to college. I needed that deferment. So it was really that kind of serious thing back then. I really w did not want to go to Vietnam. So how am I going to get the money in two months to go to UMBC? I came to the Pratt where all my answers were. And I, I went to the library and I said, what kind of scholarships can I get? I'm not even that smart. I said, uh, what, what kind of, how can I finagle my way into some kind of money to go to UMBC? And she thought about it. I had decent grades. I was at Mount St. Joe, which was a very hard high school, and I did okay but not enough to get a scholarship. And, and she thought about it, and she went to some reference book and pulled it down and said, yeah, there is one way you might be able to do it. And I, here I'm thinking about you know, saving my life here, and she's going to help me. It was, it was great. She said, uh, there's this thing called the uh, uh, legislative scholarship, I think was the name of it, where an individual con local legislator or congressman can just sign a thing, and you get a, you get a scholarship. I said, that's great. So I had to find out who my local congressman was, and lo and behold, uh, it was the father of the pitcher on my Little League team. <laughs> we had, we had, this was you know, years earlier. This was four years earlier. I was on this Little League team, and we won the championship. And you might remember this guy, Brian McGurk, uh, was the Little League pitcher. Uh, with the, the, Senator McGurk, what was his first name? Anybody remember Bob, uh, McGurk? Harry. Harry McGurk. Yeah, they, they called Soft Shoes McGurk. They called him the fixer. And he was Bryant's uh, father, our pitcher. So uh, I said, this is perfect. So I walked over to Senator McGurk's house, Harry McGurk, and I said, Harry, remember me? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, you were first base, you know, when, when you guys won. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I need a favor. I said, I don't want to go to Vietnam. <laughs> I got accepted in UMBC, but I have no money. He said, he said okay. Uh, he made a note. He said, taken care of. A few weeks later, I got my bill from UMBC. It said, uh, balance zero. Wow. And... But it was the Pratt. I mean, this amazing, it, it, my musical career, whatever, as it is or whatever, as it was, uh, uh, my uh, interest in politics, 
it was all because I, could, I knew to come here and research, and I just fell in love with the place. I knew every inch of this place by the time I was 13 or 14 years old, every nook and cranny of it. Um, by the way, Michael, you would know this. What is a cranny? Everybody knows what a nook is, but what is a cranny? <laughs> you don't know either? <laughs> I knew all the nooks. I wasn't sure about the crannies. Anyway, uh, does anybody... <laughs> Um, what else do I want to talk about? So it is full circle here, and uh, so it's great to do this. Um, what else do I want to talk about? Well, you know, I could go on and on, but the, the idea being that uh, uh, I usually don't read from my books. I've never read from my books. I've done a lot of these presentations, and usually I talk about the character, how I came to write the book, and so forth. But this is kind of awkward because the book's sort of about me, and uh, I'm, I'm not used to talking about myself. Um, so I think for the first time I might read a passage or two from the book, which is really odd because you know I've never done that. But so I photocopied some pages here, which I'll read to you. And, I, and a lot of people don't like when you read from books at a, at, a, at a book thing like this. And I'm not crazy about it myself normally. So I'll keep this short, and we'll go back and forth, and maybe discuss. But there's a couple of things in here that might be appropriate to to read. Okay, is that all right? Can I read? Okay. Uh, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping into the book early on when um, uh, I'm just, I'm a child, and um, talking about what life was like in the 50s. It was before the electronic era and its mixed dubious blessings, colon, a time without cell phones, iPhones, iPods, Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, Internet, email, cable TV, cable TV, e-books, Blackberries, texting, video games, synthesizers, GPSs, DVDs, CDs, DVRs. Guitar Hero, Online Pornography, Terrorists, Mass Theft of Recorded Music, Camcorders, Craigslist Rapists, Credit Cards, Air Conditioning, Photocopiers, Gangster Rap, or even Personal Computers. You know the time before digital heroin rendered most homo sapiens overweight, nearsighted, partially deaf, and certifiably brain dead. Not too controversial. <laughs> this is my opinion. Um, but if you lived in middle-class white America in the 50s, here's what you did have. Family dinners robust little leagues in every neighborhood, music lessons, libraries filled with actual book lovers and actual books, budding musicians, writers, and artists, pick up baseball games, time to relax and just ponder, homework, civil conversations in English, adventures every time you went out to play, daily two-mile walks home from school with your pals after you turned about 12 years old, teachers who were allowed to teach, three or more thriving newspapers in every major city, clean rivers in which to swim, unclogged highways, monster movies at a voluminous Art Deco movie house every Saturday afternoon with your gang, and, uh, oh, did I forget Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin? Uh, so this is, sets the scene for the rest of the adventure, uh, what our life was like. Um, of course, there was one ele electronic device we did possess, a 15-inch black-and-white television set, which had to have its rabbit ears, fine tuner, and horizontal, ver horizontal vertical controls readjusted every time someone breathed. Do you remember that? I had to jump up and fix that. This nuisance actually rendered watching the boob tube an aerobic exercise. <laughs> Understandably, we kids found this far less interesting than the world outside our doors, the exceptions being the Steve Allen show, the Marx, Bro Marx Brothers movie, and the local Buddy Dean show. But by and large, we weren't really committed to television. Um, so that's the era and that, that, that starts this whole adventure. Uh, during this period of my life, 
Okay, now we're getting, I'm going to cut ahead to, I'm about 12 years old now, and talking about the Pratt. During this period of my life, every spare nickel I had was saved for records, guitar strings, sheet music, and picks. I was learning songs, but I was learning songs faster than I could buy records or sheet music. That's when one of my weekend hobbies turned into a musical gold mine. In the age when Baltimore City was safe for teens to walk around alone, I spent countless Saturdays taking the number eight trolley from the west side to the center of town where I liked to lose myself in the cavernous central branch of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, still one of the great metropolitan libraries in the U.S. Built during the Great Depression, this four-story repository with three lower levels takes up a square city block. And then I quote Frank Zappa here, another Baltimorean, if you want to get laid, go to college. If you want to learn, go to a library. Frank Zappa. <laughs> the imposing gray structure contains countless marbled alcoves crammed with the combined knowledge of 1.2 million books and the staff librarians who were happy to help an enthralled 12-year-old full of wide-eyed wonderment. Taming that 275,000 square foot behemoth would serve me well decades later when I followed my bliss into investigative reporting. And I talk about uh, how I got into uh, investigative reporting years later, but I learned how to navigate archives right here. Uh, on one such foray to the library, I discovered that the fine arts department on the second floor contained hundreds of music book collections which could be borrowed for free. There was everything from folk collections in Sing Out magazine, which I discovered the, tri the Kingston Trio often raided to adapt and adopt public domain songs. Before this, I had talked about how I was trying to learn the Kingston Trio, and I found I could learn it right there. Um, there was also show tunes, jazz, and pop. Very little rock, but no matter. I felt like I had hit the number. Uh, two blocks from the library, I searched out the legendary Ted's Music Shop, just right, right up the street, still there which catered to struggling musicians and students at the Peabody Conservatory of Music located just around the corner. Ted Martini, the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, had owned a music store in Manhattan around the corner from the Juilliard School of Music. When he fell in love with a violinist from the Baltimore Symphony, he moved to her town here, married her, and then opened a store around the corner from Baltimore's Juilliard, the Peabody Conservatory. Ted was an amazingly friendly man who would let teenage musicians, almost never, almost never there with a parent, try any of thousands of used and often bizarre bargain-priced instruments that were hung from the ceiling and piled on the floor in his cluttered multi-room warehouse. Rooms full of guitars, banjos, drums, even exotic instruments like sitars and tablas. Ted's shop, which had opened in 1931, is where I saw my first and only bass banjo not to mention my first six-pickup electric guitar, bass ukulele, Bolivian armadillo skin string instrument, gypsy, gypsy guitar with an internal resonator, a violin made from a shoe, and other, and other musical machines that defy all description. It was just the craziest place. It isn't quite as crazy now as it used to be, but it was just madness in there. But uh, these musical contra contraptions were almost all old or used, but most importantly, they were obtainable. As hard as it is to imagine today, Ted would, if his instincts said one was trustworthy, let a teenager rent an instrument for two months for just $10 with no down payment, just proof of where he went to school. This seemingly absurd policy would come in handy very often for this guitarist and countless other young Baltimore musical teens. God bless you, Ted. So this was my world. This is how it got started for me. I could literally learn music here 
go around the corner and get a free, practically a free instrument. And it was all within two or three blocks. This was just a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon, I thought. Um, let's see. Uh, I talk here, I don't know if I want to read this or not, about getting my first summer job in the Poconos by coming here and learning about the Poconos and how to write away. Uh, and that was quite an adventure, which you would see in the book. And to be a teenager on your own in the Poconos or in, later in the Catskills and then up in Lake George, every summer we were just on our own having a blast. But all the directions were here on how to do it. Um, and then I, I'm going to cut ahead here to uh, a chapter where I talk about working uh, for Bobby Kennedy and how uh, the, uh, the draft, as I mentioned before, was a, a critical event for a lot of us. At the time of RFK's decision to run, I was a first-year student at what was then a commuter college, the one-year-old University of Maryland, Baltimore County. To say that UMBC was my first choice of schools would be misleading for, to paraphrase legendary NFL coach Vince Lombardi, it was the only choice. The way many of us saw it, getting into college for that coveted draft deferment was a matter of life and death. I had too many dreams to play out and I was not about to come home from Southeast Asia in a pine box at age 18. Interestingly, without the draft, I might have been happy to skip college and move to California where I could mix it up with my musical heroes. It really hit me in the spring of my senior year at St. Joe. I had three months to come up with 2,000. Well, I sort of talked about this. Why should I read this? Uh, yeah, we talked about this in general. The Pratt really uh, told me how to get $2,000 in a month, or in five minutes, actually, speaking to my pitcher's father, um, Soft Shoes McGurk. And so those are my key moments at the Pratt. You know, then I move on in life. And I obviously go to college and move away to upstate New York. And, but I don't think any of that would have been possible had I not discovered this place. It's pretty amazing. So I, I, it's just great for me to be here and really full circle, you know. Uh, and uh, I just wish more kids, you know, were hip to this. Part of the reason I wrote this, too, was to maybe, you know, in, in a Pollyanna sort of way, inspire a couple kids to read and to come down here and not just use the computers, but to wander in the stacks and talk to librarians. And, and uh, who knows, maybe one or two will get it. I don't know. Um, so the book, you know, I'll just talk about the book. The book uh, goes from there through, uh, I worked for, um, for, for Bobby Kennedy and George McGovern as an uh, unpaid uh, uh, you know, volunteer, but I got to meet them, which was great. In fact, I drove George McGovern around quite a bit when he would come to the East Coast. Um, one of the uh, most searing parts of that uh, era was uh, the the assassinations, of course, of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And there's a great juxtaposition that was going on for me personally during that. And people who've read the book, just, it just really sticks with them. I was on the UMBC tennis team, and tennis became a big part of my life, too, when I moved to New York. But um, I was on the UMBC tennis team, and we had a match for a Sunday. I guess it was April 8th or whatever, 1968. And we were to play in Clifton Park, which down North Avenue, and there were the red clay courts. And our coach had set this up as a, uh, just sort of a scrimmage with the, the local players there, older guys who just played there but were very good players. And, uh, well, a few days before that, Martin Luther King was killed. And, um, and Baltimore was one of 100 cities that just blew up. I mean, it was on fire. I don't know how many of you were here. You know, y'all remember that, those of you who were here? I mean, it was horrible. 
So, you know, this is, we're all watching TV and just sad. And, and uh, like I said, four days later, we were supposed to have a tennis match in Clifton Park, which was right in the center of the burning. Uh, North Avenue, you had to get through North Avenue to get there, and, and it was just horrible. So I called my coach up. I said, I said Coach, I guess we rescheduled the, the, uh, the match. He said, no, 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 it's on. He said, uh, you know, those guys are all World War II vets, those old regulars at Clifton Park. A little looting and rioting doesn't bother them. <laughs> I said, are you kidding? We're going to play in the middle of a riot? So uh, it comes about Sunday. We're going to play a tennis match in the middle of the whole thing. I mean, it's just startling to think about. But picture me. I'm driving from the west side down North Avenue, which was literally people were looting the stores around me. I was driving a jalopy with bare tires and almost empty on gas. I am holding my breath that I'm not going to get And I'm wearing white tennis clothes, so I look rich, <laughs> which I'm not. <laughs> you know? And this is the image. So I get to Clifton Park, and, and, and we indeed played the, the match. And uh, yeah, I made it there. Nobody bothered me. I got to the thing. I, the uh, pup tents were all around us because that was the headquarters for the military who would come in to quell the riots. There were thousands of soldiers watching us play tennis. But the image that most people remember from the book, and it, it just, I'll never forget it to this day, when you threw the toss-up, you know, to serve, I remember throwing the ball up and this beautiful white tennis ball against all the smoke and fire from North Avenue. And I said, wow, you know, talk about perspective, you know, as Spinal Tap would say. Um, but uh, uh, that's the crazy world we were in, you know, those kind of juxtapositions. And uh, so that's what the book is about, a lot of those sort of anecdotes, what it was like to live through a crazy, crazy era. In the 70s, I moved to New York and, and got to play with a lot of great musicians, and, and there's a lot of stories there. Um, when I was working as a teen in upstate New York at one of these summer resorts, coincidentally, one of the families staying at our resort uh, was a Lithuanian family with a young 13-year-old boy uh, who used to play on the tennis court a lot, where I used to play, and he was ma- hogging my tennis court because nobody else used it, and this family would come and play on it all day. And we got, I went and introduced myself just so I could play with them, and uh, he was a great young player. Coincidentally, uh, this guy went on to be one of the great pros. His name was Vitas Gerolaitis. And Vitas became my buddy. At that summer, we spent two weeks together, and the family said, Gus, at the end of the summer, why don't you come stay with us in Forest Hills because we're members of the, of the club, and you can stay in our house, and we'll go to the Open. So I skipped my first two weeks at UMBC. My mother was insane. Yeah, I said, but Mom, hanging out with Rod Laver. <laughs> she, she didn't get it. But So I got to know Vitas. Vitas and I stayed great friends. I, got to, I mean, Bjorn Borg was his best friend, so there's a lot of that Borg. I knew Borg well, and... Uh, Jimmy Connors. I hit with all these guys, and it was just a great era. So that's another part of the book, the tennis, the golden era of tennis, and I was right just coincidentally in the thick of it. Um, and, of course, the music and, uh, uh, and the politics. And then I get into what I consider sort of the downfall of all this. Everything seemed to fall apart in the late 80s, for me at least. The music scene was getting really – I was making a living playing music, uh, after a fashion, making a living. And uh, – uh, but it all went away, you know, when the DJs came in, everybody got put out of work, and we, we got different careers, and uh, just in the wink of an eye, everything changed. Late 80s, I think it was. We had a good run for a long time, but in the late 80s, the work just disappeared. So I moved on to other ventures and started doing this, another lucrative <laughs> career writing books. And, uh, uh, so, um, and that's why I've done this book. Does, does not talk about my writing career. This ends in 1990 when I come back and start a new career. But um, 
That's it. I guess I could talk for a long time, but you know, maybe we should converse. I don't know. What do you think? Should we talk? Do Q&A? Sure. Anybody have any thoughts, questions, answers? Uh, oh, here's one right here. Am I surmising correctly that you were born around 1950 when you say? Very much around 1949. Okay. All right. Thank you. Mm. I'm 48, so I just. Oh, okay. I mean, Okay. Oh, yes. Um, uh, did you put in the book the uh, great story that Vita Sherrylitis told when, when he finally beat Jimmy Connors? The oh, sure. That's time. in there. Yeah, yeah. It, good. <laughs> well, uh, what Dennis Rollins is written. We have some great celebrities here in the crowd tonight, too. Pub uh, pub scientific journal publisher Dennis Rollins is here. Uh, uh, great film historian Michael Sragoff from the Baltimore Sun is here. Uh, great filmmaker Nick Colianis, who does all the Shark Week stuff on Discovery. He's here, one of the great cameramen. Uh, um, any other celebrities? Lucas, who helped me on, on the violin today. Lucas Lukoski, one of the great violinists. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks for playing. Uh, maybe we'll do another number later. Uh, who else is here? We're pointing. Who, who am I forgetting? <laughs> yeah, let's go around the room. But anyway, uh, where, where was I? Uh, what was the question? I forgot. Oh, the, the Garolitis story that Dennis wanted to hear. Um, uh, Jimmy um, was the number – Vetus got to number three in the world. That's how high he got up in the rankings. He couldn't beat Borg. Um, he was a very nervous guy. When they got to the finals of a match or the semis, Vetus just choked. When I used to go to Vetus' house and watch them practice, he beat Borg as much as Borg beat him. But when, it got, when all eyes were on him, he just couldn't do it. He choked. He tightened up. So he could never beat Borg in a big match, and he couldn't beat Jimmy for a long time, Jimmy Connors. And uh, uh, so he had lost like 17 matches in a row to Jimmy, and at one point he finally beats, and he lost 16 in a row, that was, he lost 16 in a row, and then he finally wins. And at the press conference, uh, one of the uh, press asked uh, Vetus, how do you explain you, you, you finally beat Jimmy Connors? And Vetus said, nobody beats Vetus Garolitis 17 times in a row. <laughs> Vitas had a really good sense of humor, too. There's a lot of stories about him in there. He was a wonderful guy with a great sense of humor. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, I have a couple comments. I was taking some notes. I'll forget things. Uh -oh. I'm getting old enough, too. But um, what I liked about that time, too, the same time, because I grew up in the same time, was there were only three basic TV stations. So when you watched a good show, like All in the Family or Lucy or my favorite, uh, Andy Griffith, you could talk about it the next day with somebody that actually saw it and, you know, talk about how That's great true. the show everybody was. Everybody watched the same show. Yeah, because now you have all these cable stations and everybody doesn't watch them. So That's why Ed Sullivan's show was so good important. Sto good shows. If you were on Ed Sullivan, when Elvis was on Ed Sullivan, I think it was like 65 or 70 percent of yeah. America saw that. But now it's so diffused with all the ch channels, that could never happen again. But if you got on a couple key shows like Ed Sullivan or The Tonight Show, you were world famous. Yeah. That doesn't quite. That couldn't happen right now. And, and also, uh, you could you could watch a movie and stay for this and watch it the second time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now with the prices even double and triple, you can't. They put you out, and there's nobody in it. Of course, we used theater. to get around that at the old Edgewood yeah. Theater up near where I live. What we did was we had a gang of guys every Saturday afternoon going to the monster movies, and. Uh, we would all chip in, and Nickel leads to buy him a quarter ticket. Then, of course, he'd go to the back exit and open it up for us, and we'd all race in. <laughs> that, that was a really, that was, it happened every weekend almost. And, and, the poor Edgewood Theater. I feel bad. And also a comment, uh, one more thing. 
Well, uh, the wood, they used to play wooden rackets, too. And nowadays, right. it wasn't just about power. You actually had to have some kind of finesse. Well, the, the, yeah, which, the, the synthetic rackets ruined the tennis game. That's I, another story. But, you know, can you only imagine if they'd introduced um, metallic bats to baseball, how it would have ruined the game? Well, that's what they did to tennis, and it really did. It went downhill after that. The well, game is all power now. There's no finessing. No, it used to be like chess. Everybody, everybody had to command about 20 different kind of shots spins and chips and charges and smashes and lobs and drops and half volleys and now it's just forehand backhand sir you know federer is a pretty talented guy he could do a lot yeah uh-huh. <laughs> oh lucidroni by nancy and lucidroni lucidroni the longtime reviewer uh, of everything for, for the baltimore baltimore sun right or news american morning sun morning sun lucidroni he's a legend in baltimore <laughs> I hope he's not reviewing this. <laughs> <laughs> Gus, do you still spend time on the tennis court? No, you know, it's, it's, it's a bummer. I miss it. What happened was Why about not? six or seven years ago, <laughs> my knee just, you know, if you, I played so much from the time I was 13. I mean, five and six days a week on hard courts. So after about 35 years, my knees just, you know. So I'll rally a little bit. I'll hit, but, you know. There are cycles in life, you know, we have to deal with. And one of them is I had to stop playing singles tennis, darn it all. Hi, as a, yeah. as a musician myself, uh, who is eking out a little, a little bit of a living Welcome to the playing club. music, right? Um, I, I kind of am intrigued by what you said about how it, it stopped or, like, you mm. couldn't make a living as a musician because of the DJs. I mean, like, what, what actually... What were you doing that was Let me so tell you, let me give good. you some, uh, sort of a capsule of what it was like to grow up as a musician back in the 60s and, and 70s and whatever. When I was, by the time I was 14 years old, I had a working band. When I was in Mount St. Joe, I played every weekend making money. A lot of the musicians did. There were, and I, I did a survey. I went back and looked in the newspapers and in the old uh, phone books and such to, to figure this out. There were, in the early 60s, 300 CYOs in Baltimore. Every Friday night they had to dance with a live band. That's 300 gigs for young musicians. Every Saturday night, there were 450 teen centers in Baltimore that had a dance. 450 more jobs. That's how we learned to play. That's all gone. How do young people learn to play? Because you don't learn to play at home looking at a computer. You learn music by doing it with other people. And, and you, know, you know, you're a musician. And... Um, we were lucky to have that. By the time I was 15, I could play, and I, I knew what it was like to arrange and how to please an audience and talk, and um, I never looked back, but I feel bad for today's kids. Anyway, that went on. Uh, when I got out of college, I moved upstate New York because after Woodstock, all the musicians moved to upstate New York. Everybody lived there, and it was a great place to interact with a lot of talented, famous people, and it was easy. But there were so many clubs. There was a circuit throughout New England, hundreds of clubs where you could play original music, concert-style music and play four or five nights a week, make a nice middle-class living. You could teach guitar during the day. And um, that ran for another 15 years or so. And then when uh, the electronics came in, first the synthesizers, the drum machines, put all the drummers out of work, and then the DJs just destroyed it because all the weddings... We, we made our profit on the weekend with weddings, bar mitzvahs. We could charge double scale. They all disappeared. If you talk to a wedding photographer today and ask them when the last time they saw a live band at a wedding, they'll tell you 95% of the times is a DJ. And that all happened when the DJ explosion happened in the late 80s, and a lot of us got out of the business. You know? So that's what it was like. It was a different world. It, but just disappeared just like that. You know? Very sad. Any other questions? 
Well, first of all, Gus is one of the current Pratt librarians. Thank you for your kind words. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, makes us Thank feel very good. Thank you for what you good. do, too. Thank uh, you. Check is in the mail, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah right, right, right. I've heard that before, um, I've got a question for you. You've done so many interesting things and have been so intellectually curious about things. Is there any field or any endeavor that you, you regret that you didn't pursue at this point? Boy, that's a good question. You know, I talk about in the beginning of the book, I quote uh, Sid Hartha and Joseph Campbell and all these adventurous people about following your, your muse, you know, and, and your bliss, follow your bliss. And I really did it. I mean, I, I hate to, and it didn't always work, but um, I, I'm trying to think. There must have been something I didn't do that I wanted to do. But, I mean, I, when I read James A. Michener, I wanted to be, live in Polynesia. When, well, in the mid-'80s, I moved to Hawaii, and, you know, and I did that. Uh, I wanted to play with famous people. John Phillips from the Mamas and Papas was an idol of mine, and I got to play with him many times. The, uh, I, was, I joined the new Mamas and Papas in the 80s when they got back together. Um, I first learned how to play like the Kingston Trio, like I say, over in the fine arts department. Well, the Kingston Trio all became great friends of mine. When the Grammy Awards were given this year, um, they said the, the widows of the trio went on stage to accept the Grammys. And they invited me out. I, I was in the audience. They, they flew me out because I'm, I'm such good friends with them now. And uh, they thanked four people from the stage, uh, Nick, uh, Leslie Reynolds, Nick Reynolds' widow, the lead singer. She said, I'd like to thank some people you know, who are big fans of the trio and have done so much for us and are great friends. She thanked the um, curator of the Smithsonian Music Collection, Carrie Joles. She thanked, um, uh, let's see, Al Jardine of the Beach Boys, Timothy Schmidt of the Eagles, and Gus Russo. <laughs> and I don't know why. I, was, I just fell out of my chair. I said, what the heck? But so to answer your question, I, I feel like I've done pretty much what I want to do. I mean, I was mystified by the Kennedy assassination, like many of us were when that happened, when we, for those who lived through it. And it took, and I worked on that very hard in my investigative work. I did a lot of documentaries, wrote two books on it. And about five or six years ago, I felt like I cracked it, like I solved it. So I wanted to figure out what that was about, and it took forever to get the people to talk to me who really knew and I'm talking overseas intelligence agents who've never spoken to anybody. And uh, I did a book and a film on that. So that was my big intellectual curiosity, what happened to Kennedy. And I think I, I got that. You know, after, we, after I leave here, I'm going to think of some things that I wanted to do, but I didn't do. But so far, so good. You know? <laughs> um, but I was often broke. <laughs> you know? So I say in the book, I, one of the messages I leave to young people is that it's a, it's a really wise quote. I, obviously, I didn't think of it. Maybe you will know where it came from. But stuff is the enemy of freedom. Does anybody know where that comes from? But the more stuff you have or want, it, it restricts you from being free, ties you down. I didn't need anything but a tennis racket and a guitar. I, I could do anything I wanted. Kids today can't do that because they need more stuff. And, and they say, how did you go to Hawaii? And how did you just do that? I said, I just did it. I didn't have a monthly cell phone bill. You know, I didn't have an SUV to pay for. I just did. All I had was a tennis racket. So, you know, um, because I didn't have that stuff weighing me down, and a lot of us didn't, we could just do what we wanted. And I think it was a better way to go. Yeah. Why did I open up that can of worms? <laughs> Ask about the single bullet. Um, well, I, 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 okay, we can't get into a, a you know, debate about it tonight, obviously, but I'll give you my conclusion if, if you want to hear it. 
Uh, and it's based on conversations with thousands of people. I've known everybody close to that case since 1978. I started researching it, worked for Frontline, like they said, Peter Jennings, and we did shows. Been to Dallas a thousand times, New Orleans, Mexico, Soviet Union. Everywhere Oswald was, I've been there and spoken to everybody who knew him. Here's my conclusion. Oswald did it. And, but the mystery really was why. We've never, you know, the question really shouldn't have been who done it, but why done it. And, and it took a long time to figure that out. But why he did it, I can tell you because I spoke to the people who I trust who spoke to him shortly before he did it, and he told them why he did it. These were Mexican and Cuban intelligence operatives living in Mexico City where he went um, in the weeks before the killing, and they've never been spoken to before. Very hard to, to get these people. Uh, he did it for Fidel Castro. He wanted to be a hero to the revolution. He went to Mexico two months before and offered to do it. He wanted to be a spy and a hero for Fidel. They didn't take him seriously, so he said, I'll show you how serious I am for this revolution. I'll kill Kennedy for you. And they knew he, they knew he was going to do it, and uh, uh, they let it happen. And that was it. But that's my conclusion. Any other questions? Are there, paral are there parallels with Booth? I'm not a Booth expert, you know, a, a Lincoln expert, although there may be one here tonight. I don't know. I'm not a Lincoln, but that certainly was a conspiracy, you know. Um, but as far as um, his, his motives, I, mean, the, you know, I, I guess just to avenge the South, I don't know. Some relation to the Confederacy, so. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That. I don't, I'm not an expert in that. Um, hi. Hey. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first, I'd just like to say that um, you say in the book that one of your goals is for people who lived through the 60s like you did, uh, people who are baby boomers like me, that you hoped we would see it as this nostalgic trip and remember everything well, and yeah, I yeah. did, and you actually you nailed it perfectly. Thank you. Um, except, for, except for the gender differences. I mean, for example, um, Little League. Um, <laughs> Before Title IX, there were so many things that just Fair simply you weren't open to women. I was one of the best softball players, and I you know, after fourth grade, I, w I would practice with the boys. It's terrible, yeah. And then I went to tryouts, and they said, well, that's, well, I, I was my turn, and I was, I was shocked that I couldn't try out. And I said, well, where's the girls' team? And there wasn't any, and yeah. there wasn't any girls' team for that. There wasn't any in school. There wasn't any for the town. And in high school, there weren't any no softball teams, and in college, I went to a women's wow. college, yeah. and the only sports then were archery and dance. Then I transferred to the University of Michigan in the 60s, and the only cheerleaders were men. <laughs> Women oh, couldn't be God. cheerleaders. <laughs> so, well, Glenda, you're a great writer, so you should write that book. <laughs> well, there, there is that, the 60s, you know, as a, as a female. But, you know, what, what's, what's astonishing about the book is that you, you set out uh, to... to Follow your bliss, but also to stick true to your principles, which are things you, you learned from experience, like your father who wanted to be a, a singer and couldn't do it and didn't do it. So yeah, you yeah. resolved to do the things that you were passionate about and loved and were fun. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And you managed to do it. Well, for better, you know. <laughs> well, well, no, but you managed work, to, but, to but, either but. as part of an adventure yeah, yeah, say, yeah. Or, 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 you know, to, to do things that were fun at the time and without... Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's pretty astonishing. Um, thank there's one part in the book um, I wanted to ask you about where you say, uh, you start to talk about a relationship with a woman named Kim that in college that you... I heard from her the other day. 
<laughs> you did after reading the book. Yes, yeah, she read the book and emailed me. I, I tried to leave was out it, like girlfriends real... out of the book. So the one one I mentioned only because uh, it talks about there was a moment in time where we were what they call phone freaks. She lived in New Jersey, and I want to talk about that thing where we were all trying to get free long-distance phone calls, and Abby Hoffman taught us how to do it. And so I had to introduce Kim, and I said Kim was the girl that I was calling. Well, she emailed me a voluminous email. <laughs> we'll talk. What was the question? Oh, uh, well, she, she's the only one you name by name, actually, and right. I wondered if that was her real name, so I guess no, it, it wasn't. Was. No, oh, it wasn't, but no. she still knew it was her. Okay. She, but, she, but, said, she said, she emailed me, she says, Dear Gus, this is Kim. Car- her real name is Carol. <laughs> um, but but you say um, that you say you, you started to talk about your theories of how difficult it is for to have a monogamous relationship in the oh, 60s. Oh, that's, that's sort of a throwaway because, line in the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and because of groupies and, and such things, and you say girls in tennis outfits and, and yeah. so on and so on and so on. <laughs> uh, and you say, but that's another book. So is that another book? Well, is that not going for me. I'm not an expert book? in that, but I read well, a lot of those books. you're an expert in yourself, though. Well, yeah, but who cares about that? This was about the era. Uh, I don't yeah, know if anybody cares about, about my that. views on that. But I would recommend Dr. Helen Fisher is a great writer of uh, – she's a biologist, and mm-hmm. she talks about the essence of uh, human mating and attraction and all the foibles that go with it. I just think she's wonderful, and I agree with a lot of what she says. Uh, it, it, it's really – uh, Woody Allen might have said it best, Michael. Do you remember in Annie Hall? <laughs> I think it was the closing scene where uh, they, they, he was he had broken up with Annie so many times, and and uh, he was talking to a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist said, uh, uh, "Woody, um, well, they were talking about something else first. They were talking about Woody says, you know, my brother's crazy. He should be here in the in the psychiatrist's office, and 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 the doctor says." What's his problem? He says, uh, well, he, you know, he, thinks, uh, he, he, he thinks he's a chicken. And the doctor says, well, why don't you tell him he's not? And Woody says, well, because we need the eggs. And, but he said, and then he said, that's what relationships are like. We need the eggs. <laughs> you know? But they make very little more sense than that a lot of times. You know? uh, I went to Morgan State University in um, mm-hmm. 1977. That's when I started um, coming to um, Central Library, you know, prayer. Oh, yeah. I really love books and everything. You know, spent a lot of time doing my home assignments here. And um, I can remember even spending Friday nights here. You know, even Saturdays, the library would be open till like 11 o'clock yeah, at yeah. night. And all the young people would be in the library, you know, doing their book assignments. But, you know, even the college library is closed early now, you know, like uh-huh. 5 or 6 o'clock on Friday. So you can't do that anymore really? yeah. anywhere in the city. So I really think it's great the way you told the story about you know your um, your life with Enoch Pratt Library. Oh, I thought you. that part was really. I, great. I hope it, some kids read it, you know, and give it a try. Mm-hmm. You know? All right, thank you. Thank you. We'll take one more question. Okay, Anybody? who hasn't asked one uh, over here? Okay. Um, teenage Gus Russo running around out there somewhere. Another kid is running around the practice. You know, I, 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 assu- I assume there is, but I, I would think what's that. First, uh, oh, the question is, uh, is do you think there are other like young guys like me running around now doing, leading the path that I went down? And I, I hope there are. I assume there must be. But I'll tell you, I do think it's a lot more difficult today that, to do that. Than, I was lucky. I came up at the right time. I talk about in here about how we used to put our thumb out and go to Chicago for the weekend. You know, you can, we, I, I used to go past the Beltway when they first built it. And there were kids there every weekend with signs saying, you know, Chicago, Miami, North. And just 
loads of them, and it was a, a great life. Um, one girlfriend I had um, taught me another version of hitchhiking that you can't do today. She said she was really crazy. She said, let's just go to the airport and go hitchhiking. I said, what? She said, oh, it's really cool. You've got to see it. So she taught me how to go to the private airstrips up in Albany by Albany Airport, and we'd go to the private field and stick our thumb out at the executive jets, and they would look at us like we're crazy, but they'd take us for rides. They'd say, well, we're going to Montreal for the afternoon. You can come with us. And so the point is, oh, yeah, we went, we went to Kansas once. We went to Montreal. We went, where else did we used to? We went to Chicago just for day trips with these executives. They had empty seats. They, they looked at us like, yeah, why not? <laughs> Spike taught me that. It's a great girl, Diana. It's a great girl. But uh, I just don't think it's easy to live like that anymore. I wish it was, you know. So there we got that uh, good? Yes. Um, he's, we have books in the back for sale, and Gus is going to sign books here at the, at the front. Oh, yeah. Let's give him a great round of applause. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you.